Now, when I was a kid, I was probably like some of y'all. I was an avid reader. And uh, some of my fondest memories of my elementary school days are going to the, the library and checking out all the books. It's like as soon as I got one home, I'd gobble it up. And some of them I still think about today. I remember this book written by Gary Paulson called Hatchet about a boy whose plane goes down in the wilderness and he has to survive with nothing more than his hatchet. I mean, that really stuck with me. But most of the books I read, I've forgotten. Until this week, I was thinking back about a choose-your-own-adventure book. Any of y'all remember those? You'd start out the book, and you'd have a little narrative plot line getting set, and then you'd come to a decision point. What do you want the hero or heroine to do next? And depending on which course of action you wanted them to take, you'd turn to a different page of the book, and the story would go on. It was like you were choosing your own adventure. I was thinking about the book The Green Slime, and uh, the choose-your-own-adventure that I remember reading about that. And those books, I don't think anyone would say are literary classics. But they do have a lot to teach us about life. Because pretty much as soon as you get to be a grown-up, you start making these decisions that alter the outcome of the adventure you get to live. And sometimes you, you have that sense in the moment. You can see the decision that's in front of you, and you just know Man, this is going to be a consequential turning point in my life. I really need to think this decision through. And then other times, you can really only tell the consequential decisions by looking backwards. And it's maybe you chose some random class in high school or college, and you ended up sitting next to your soulmate. You know, how did that happen? This is the way it works. Or you took a new job and moved across the state, and your life changed forever. And you never could have expected, you thought this was just going to be the next thing that God wanted for you. And here it is. He opens up a whole new avenue of life you never thought possible. But I think of all the life-changing or defining choices we could make, probably none, and I know you'll be with me on this, none is as consequential as the decision we make about Jesus. He is this great dividing line in every person's life. Here he is, the Lord of all. Choose your own adventure. And our passage this morning shows us these religious leaders at the crossroads, getting one last shot to make the right decision. Will they reject the authority of Jesus and face his judgment? Or will they recognize him as Lord and receive the salvation that he came to bring? That's the question they faced, and I just want to cut to the chase with you. It's a question we each face today. What will we choose? Will we reject the authority of Jesus, or will we recognize him as Lord? See, God has gathered us. I, I believe this about every Sunday. I say something along these lines. God has orchestrated all the events of our life so that we'd be here together right in this moment. But I really believe that today. I mean, I believe it always. I really believe it today. God has orchestrated all the events of your life because he wants to put the choice before you. Which decision will you make? Will you reject Jesus as Lord or will you submit to him as Lord? Over the past few weeks, we've been working our way through Mark chapter 11 in this series, the final week. Today we're getting out of 11 and into 12. And the story Mark tells us is about Jesus' arrival in the holy city, Jerusalem. It starts on Sunday. We read that in Mark chapter 11, 1 to 10. 
where Jesus rides into the city on the back of a donkey to shouts of praise all around him. People are dancing, throwing leaves on the ground, making a red carpet for him. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. He gets into the city and he goes and he surveys the temple. And on Monday, he gets to work, fulfilling the prophecy of Malachi, that the Lord would suddenly arrive in his temple and he would purify the temple. And that's what Jesus did. He saw tables and stalls set up in the court of the Gentiles and he turned over the tables and he let free all the birds out of their cages and he ran off the thieves who'd set up shop, cleansing or rather condemning the temple for its thin veneer of hypocrisy. And both of those actions on Sunday, Palm Sunday, and on Monday, we saw are highly symbolic. They are purposefully enacted by Jesus to make a point. He wants everybody to see who he is as the Messiah and the Lord of the temple, the one with the authority to call his people to repentance and to render his judgment. And they are the climactic revelation of who he is. Anybody with eyes to see and ears to hear would have to come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah. Because of that, the religious leaders take note, not because they are ready to bow down before him, but because they feel like he's encroaching on their turf. And so they come to him with these questions in verses 27 and following about his authority. And so the first thing I want you to see this morning as we work our way through this passage is that people who reject the authority of Jesus face his judgment. People who reject the authority of Jesus face his judgment. Let's look at these questions again. They came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and scribes and elders came to him and began to say to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do these things? Now, who are these men? I don't know if you're like me. Sometimes you read about all these people, and they all just kind of jumble up into one group, and so we call them the religious leaders. But Mark is pretty specific. He says these people came to Jesus. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Mark draws our attention to this because any attentive first century reader would have known exactly who these men were. They were an official delegation sent from the governing authority of Judea, the Sanhedrin. It was a 70-member council of men that the Romans had delegated authority to to make decisions for the internal affairs of Israel. And there were three groups that made up the Sanhedrin. The chief priests, which was the high priest who sort of served as the chairman of the Sanhedrin, and then all previous high priests and important members of the high priest's family. They were the chief priests. And then there were the elders. They were the heads of the families, the patriarchs of the nation. And then there were the scribes, the learned legal scholars. And these men got together like a senate to choose and decide what course of action to take for the nation. And when the Sanhedrin gets word of this pilgrim entourage shouting Hosanna on Sunday, and then of this Galilean carpenter turning over tables in the temple on Monday. On Tuesday, we, we got to figure out what's going on here. So they send this official delegation to ask Jesus 
Who do you think you are? I mean, that's, what, that's a Brad Mills paraphrase. By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you authority to do these things? What, what gives you the right to come into the temple and do these things? Now, I don't want you to be confused. Jesus was on their radar and had been for three years. Back in Mark chapter 3, verse 22, we read about scribes who'd come up from Jerusalem and who were announcing to everyone that Jesus was doing mighty miracles and was casting out demons, but he wasn't acting on God's behalf. Rather, he was doing it by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. And so for a good period of time, the religious leaders in Jerusalem knew about Jesus. They knew what he was doing. They'd sent investigative teams with white clipboards and special coats, and they'd gone and they'd taken notes about who Jesus was and what he was doing. But this was different. This was different. Jesus wasn't just operating in the far-flung district of Galilee. He had walked into the epicenter of religious life and was on their home turf. And he could get away with it on Sunday and Monday, but on Tuesday, we're taking decisive action. We're getting to the bottom of this. We're to make sure that Jesus doesn't continue doing what he's doing. And so he invites them in. Verse 28, what are you doing? Who gave you authority to do these things? And 29, he says, yeah, let me ask you a question and then I'll answer you. Jesus is glad to tell them what authority he's exercising. But first he wants them to tell him whether John's baptism was from heaven or from men. That's verse 30. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? Answer me. Answer me. And so I love it. They huddle up. And they're looking over their shoulders. What do we say? He asks us, where did John baptism come from? What do we say from, from God, from heaven? Well, if we say that, then he's going to say, why didn't you listen to him? But if we say from men, then all these people are going to get mad because they really liked John. They thought he was a real prophet. See, Jesus knew how to get to the bottom of their hearts. They had encountered John. They had sent an official delegation out to the Jordan River to figure out what, he was going, what was going on. Mark tells us in Mark chapter 1 that John appeared in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism for the re- for, of repentance for the forgiveness of sins in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy that the Lord was going to send a messenger before him who was going to prepare his way. And when the religious leaders go out to investigate and see what John is up to, here's what they find. Look over in John chapter 1. They find this man. All the people are out there being baptized by him. And they say, verse 19 of John chapter 1, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And so they asked him, well, what then are you? Are you Elijah? Mark says that's exactly who he was. Jesus says, yes, that's exactly who he was. Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? The one that Moses said, God will raise up for you from among your brothers, a prophet. Listen to him. Are you the prophet? No. Well, who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John says, well, I'm one. I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now, they'd been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing? If you're not the Christ, and if you're not Elijah nor the prophet, why are you doing this? 
And John answered them, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It's he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. Now, I think John made it just about as plain as he could have. I am not the Christ. I am not Elijah. I'm just a messenger. I'm just here to tell you that God's coming, and his people better get ready because he's coming to judge. He wants you to repent, to cleanse your heart, and to prepare yourself to receive him. And these religious leaders wanted nothing to do with it. And so during his life, they rejected him. And after his death, they really think he's just a fake prophet. After all, what kind of fake prophet gets himself killed, you know? Not knowing the full story and not realizing the part they're playing. And so when they refuse to answer Jesus, he says, well, I'm not going to tell you where I got my authority from. If you didn't recognize John's authority, you wouldn't recognize me. The one he announced was coming. So that's the questioning that the religious leaders do to Jesus. And this morning, as we think about what it means to reject Jesus and face his judgment, I want to introduce you to this process. I want you to think about this, pray about it. Maybe you can get back with me this week and think if this is all the steps to the process of rejection or if these are just three. I don't know. I can't decide. But number one, the first step in rejecting Jesus is we always question him. And that's what the religious leaders did. They questioned him. But quickly, questioning moves to challenging him. And all throughout Mark chapter 12, we see the challenges the religious leaders put before him. In verse 13, we start to read about three different challenges. And I'm going to preach a whole series of messages on this in June. So I just want to kind of skirt over the top of them, the challenges the religious leaders put to Jesus. And I want you to see how they all work together to exert human authority over the authority of Jesus. First, the Pharisees and Herodians come to him in Mark chapter 12, verse 13, and they ask him about the poll tax. They say, hey, is it lawful for us to pay a tax to Caesar? And Jesus says, well, bring me one of the coins. And he says, whose face is on it? And I say, well, Caesar's face. And he says, then give to Caesar what's Caesar's, and give to God's what's God's. Okay, Pharisees and Herodians leave. Next come the Sadducees. And they say, okay, Jesus, imagine this. There's a man who's married to a woman, and he dies, and he has seven brothers. And after he dies, his next brother marries the woman, and so on and so on, until every brother's died and every brother's married the woman. In the resurrection, whose wife is she? She says, you don't understand the resurrection at all. And so they move on. Next comes the scribe, who says, Jesus, tell me, which is the most important law? And Jesus says, well, it's obvious that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one's like it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. And the scribe says, hey, you've answered correctly and wisely. And in each case, these people, the Pharisees and Herodians and the Sadducees and the scribes, come trying to show Jesus to be some fraud. But here are all these people gathered in the temple, and they want to publicly discredit him. They want to give him the question that's going to stump him, and so that the estimation that the people have of him, that he is something special, that maybe he is the coming Messiah, gets taken down a few notches that they can exert their authority and puff out their chest and show that they're still in charge. You think about each of these people, whether it's the chief priests or the Sadducees or the scribes, and each one could claim their own source of authority. The chief priests were in charge of the temple and derived their authority from the ceremonies that God had instituted in the law that had to take place at the temple. You showed up to sacrifice animals, you submitted to the authority of the priests who told you which way to go and what to do to make sure the ceremony happened exactly the way it was supposed to happen. 
So they exerted their authority over Jesus. We're in charge here. You're on our turf. You're out of your jurisdiction. And you got the Pharisees who possess this deep moral authority because they lived conspicuously righteous lives. And so when the Pharisees spoke, people listened because, man, this is a holy person. They must know more of God than I do. The Sadducees and Herodians were political leaders who derived their authority from their connections and family relationships and hereditary titles. Jesus was just son of Mary and of the carpenter from Galilee, from Nazareth, a know-nothing backwater place. Who did he think he was? We're the elite. And the scribes had this authority that came from their deep education and knowledge of the law so they could run circles around people in Sunday school class. They're the ones in charge. And in each case, Jesus confounded them. None of them could say anything. They finally give up. Mark tells us at the end of chapter 12 that they left and nobody dared ask him any more questions. But you can't get around the authority of Jesus. Whatever authority you think you have, it's nothing in his presence. Who do you think you are? And so it goes from questioning Jesus' authority to challenging his authority until finally you got nothing left, but you just reject it outright. And that's the story Jesus tells in his parable of the tenants. He knows what's going on. He can see it. He knows it's been predicted. He's in tune with the Father's plan. And so he knows that he's gone into Jerusalem. He has rendered his verdict on the temple. And God's judgment is coming. And so he warns them with the parable. This parable is rooted in his knowledge of the Old Testament and the symbol of the vine, which is used over and over and over again to describe Israel, to symbolize Israel's relationship with God. All the way back in Isaiah chapter 5, God announces his coming judgment on the people of that day because when he wanted to see honest, open, loving obedience from them, all he saw was bloodshed. And so in Isaiah 5, you can read how Isaiah says, listen, God planted this vineyard and he dug all around it, removed its stones, planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in the middle of it and hewed out a wine vat under it. And he expected it to produce good grapes, but it only produced worthless ones. And so God says, I'm going to allow the nations to come in and run rampant in my vineyard to tear it up. I'm going to take down the wall of protection around you and you're going to lose your nation. And Jesus essentially says, this is happening again. It's deja vu. We've been here before. We know how this story ends. He takes their questioning and rejection of his authority and he puts it in the long line of unfaithfulness from God's people that though he sent servant after servant after servant, prophet after prophet after prophet, the people rejected God's pleas for repentance. And they treated him shamefully, even killed him, just like they had done with John. And so finally, God says, well, hey, I've got somebody I haven't sent yet. What if I sent my own son? Surely they'll listen to him. And instead, this crazy thing happens in the story. They think because the son has showed up, that means the father has died. And so the son is there to collect his inheritance. And they think, well, if we kill this son, then there will be nobody to inherit the land, and we can just take it for ourselves. They reject all authority, not the master's authority, not the master's slave's authorities, not even the authority of the son of the master. They send them all away, hoping to keep for themselves what rightfully belongs to him. And Jesus says, 
Watch out. Because you have rejected God's pleas for repentance. In verse 9 of chapter 12, he says, He's going to come and destroy the vine growers, and he will give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Don't get it wrong. The religious leaders are not there curious about the source of Jesus' authority. They show up with their minds made up. We don't care who you are or what you think you're up to. This is not the place for it. Get out. That's their intention. They are rejecting him wholesale. And Jesus says, because of that, you're going to face the wrath of God. I mean, in a few days, it's Tuesday when they're challenging him. By Friday, they will hold a hasty trial. They'll hand him over to the Romans. The Romans will crucify him, and they'll mock him. You who said you were king of the Jews, why don't you come down off the cross now? They don't believe for a second anything he claims about himself. And what tragic proof. The people who reject the authority of Jesus face his judgment. And I would warn you to listen to what Jesus has to say in this passage because the rejection we see in the religious leaders isn't unique to them. But it's actually a universal principle that plays out over and over and over again. It's deeply baked into who we are as human beings far from God. You could look over with me at Genesis chapter 3 and I can prove it to you. Maybe you know the story of Adam and Eve and how when God created the world, he prepared in it a perfect place for people called the Garden of Eden. And he made the first man and the first woman and he put them in the middle of the garden and he said, you guys can eat whatever you want in my garden. Just don't eat from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And so we don't know how long, how much time passes, how long they're there. But at some point, we get to Genesis chapter 3, and all is not well in the garden of God. It says, The serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? That's a question. Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. I told you the process of rejection goes like this. First you question God's authority. Did God really say you can't eat from the tree in the garden? It's just an innocent question. Let's just throw it out here. Let's just see how it feels, okay? Let's throw it out and let's... Chew on it for a second and see. Did God really say? You question the authority. Then what happens? You challenge it. The serpent said to the woman in verse 4, You surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Is it true that God said? That's the question. Here's the challenge. No, it's not true. God knows that the day you eat of it, you won't die. You'll just be like him. You'll be able to discern between good and evil. And so the third step is rejection. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, 
She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. This is the process that people go through over and over and over again, from an ancient garden to the Temple Mount to Luling, Texas, 2023. We question the authority of God. We challenge the authority of God, and we reject the authority of God. That's the way it works. And when that happens, when you allow that process to play out, you can be certain, though God is patient, not slow as we count slowness, He's just waiting because He doesn't want anyone to perish, but He wants all to come to repentance. Even though God is patient and waits, eventually, time runs out, and you face His judgment. As a result, it's clear to all of us who Jesus is. I mean, I, make it, I try to make it as clear as possible Sunday after Sunday that Jesus is God's Son sent to live a sinless life on our behalf, fulfilling the law that we should have fulfilled and dying the death that we deserved and that God raised him up from the grave and he ascended into heaven where he's ruling and reigning and from where he's coming again to judge his enemies and establish his new heaven and new earth. That's who Jesus is. And though it's clear what kind of life he calls us to live, made clear for us in the Bible, how many times do we go through that process of questioning the authority of Jesus and challenging the authority of Jesus and then rejecting the authority of Jesus? It happens with doctrines that we don't like. Like hell. Did Jesus really teach that everyone who dies apart from him will go to hell. Did Jesus really teach that? Maybe you've been asked that question before by a friend or a child. I was a teenager once asking that question myself. Is that true? What about the person on an island in the middle of nowhere? Is it true? And then you get to be a little older and you start doing some re research on Wikipedia you find out that one of the words Jesus used for hell in the New Testament is Gehenna, which was a place, a valley of Hinnom, where they burn trash. And so next time you're at Sunday school class, hey, I was asking last week, you know, did Jesus really teach people are going to hell? And actually, no, he said people are going to Gehenna. He was just using the worst imaginable image to convey what it would be like apart from him. He didn't really mean that hell is a place of fire and conscious torment. He's just drawing on common imagery to impress a point. Question, and then you challenge, and then you get to the place eventually where you say, well, hey, look, if God is the type of God who would send people to hell to punish them for all eternity, I could never serve him. I could never serve a God who would send people to hell. And so it's a process. And insert your own doctrine, whichever issue you got. Hey, is the Bible really God's word? Well, don't you know that the Bible has been edited and translated over the centuries? Of course, there are things in it that can't fit with our world. And if it did, if God did expect us to live that way, I could never serve a God like that. Take your own doctrine. You're going to question it. You're going to challenge it. You're going to reject it. Take ethical teaching from the Bible that you don't agree with. Or that's at odds with our culture. Did Jesus actually have anything to say about human sexuality? 
Did he ever talk about abortion? Did he ever teach us how we ought to treat immigrants, refugees? Get my concordance out. Look for abortion. You question it. And then you do the research and you say, hey, you know, Jesus actually talked more about money than he did about sex. You say, yeah. Apparently he didn't have much to say about the LGBTQ stuff. He never mentioned abortion. His teaching on the love of neighbor doesn't take into consideration the fact that these people are breaking our laws. And so you question it. Did he really say anything about it? And then you challenge it. And then you say, well, look, even if he did say something about that, clearly it doesn't apply to us. Clearly the circumstances are totally different. So far removed from us, how could this apply to the world we're living in today? And so you question and you challenge and then you reject it. Or what about the standards of discipleship? Like, did Jesus really say we have to go to church on Sunday? I wish you would have, because then I'd stand up here and I'd beat it over your head. <laughs> thou, thou shalt attend church every week. I mean, it'd make it easy for us preachers, but he didn't. He didn't say that. And anyway, I feel closer to God when I'm in a tree stand than I do at church. And if he did expect me to, church, to be at church every Sunday... Surely he's going to give me a little grace because he knows i got lots to do on the weekend. Did Jesus really mean when he said in Luke 9.23, any person who would come after me would have to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me? Did he really mean that? Did he mean that we have to deny ourselves? I don't think he meant that. He, what, what he's trying to say is that of all the things in our life that takes our attention, he's got to be at the top. Not all-consuming, but just a priority. And even if he did, if I took it seriously, if I heard his call to discipleship as it's presented in the Bible, that means I'd be weird. People would think I'm strange, a Bible beater, a zealot, a fundamentalist. And so you question his teaching and standards and then you challenge them, and then you reject them. And even though Jesus came to give you an abundant life, you'll never find it rejecting His authority in your life. What I mean is you can't pick and choose what of Jesus' teaching you want to implement in your life. Like, I like what Jesus said about heaven. I'm not sure about that hell stuff. I like what Jesus said about loving your neighbor, but I don't think he's going to get to decide who my neighbor is. Or I like what he said about treasure in heaven, but I think I'm going to just pile up a little bit on earth too. You don't get to do that. It's what the Chinese missionary Hudson Taylor said. Jesus is either Lord of all, or he's not Lord at all. And so be careful when you find yourself in that process of rejection, whether you're just questioning, hey, I'm just asking some questions here, or whether you're challenging what Jesus clearly says in his word, because eventually you're going to reject it outright. I've seen it a thousand times in people's lives. 
And when people reject the authority of Jesus, they face his judgment. But there's another choice. It's not the only way. It's actually right here in this passage. In verse 9, there's a little bit of hope. Jesus says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He'll come and destroy the vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. See, it's true that Jesus said in Matthew 21, verse 38, that he was going to take the kingdom away from the religious leaders and give it to people who were going to bear fruit in keeping with it. But who were these people? Who are these other people? And on the one hand, it's obviously these crowds of people who are gathered around him. I like to think that Jesus casts a knowing glance in their direction. The religious leaders are there asking him, who do you think you are? What gave you the right to come into this place and do what you're doing? And Jesus warns them, hey, look, you're on a slippery slope that's going to lead to God's wrath. But there are some other people, and maybe he looks around, some other people that God's preparing a kingdom for. People who are outside the city on Sunday with me who were shouting praises to God because they saw their king coming, humble and on the foal of a donkey. There are some people who were there when I was cleansing the temple, and they were saying, praise God, finally, we're going to have some peace and quiet and worship the Lord. There's some other people, some pilgrims, some disciples who heard the call and left everything behind to follow him because when he spoke, they said he spoke with authority, not as the scribes, who fell down before him and said, heal me if you can. And he said, I can, be clean. Who moved heaven and earth to drop their friend through the roof of a house so he could walk again. And Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. I mean, all along the way in the story, there were people who saw the authority of Jesus and recognized it for what he was. He was bringing the kingdom of God near, and anybody who would bow down before him and humbly ask would receive the blessings he came to bring. Anybody who recognizes the authority of Jesus receives his salvation and gets in on the blessings of life with God. So on the one hand, I think that's what Jesus is thinking about. He's thinking about all these people who are gathered around him. On the other hand, I think he's thinking far bigger than that. I told you last week that the cleansing of the temple marked a monumental shift of the ground underneath the disciples' feet. And I told you it was a redemptive, historical shift. That means in the history of all that God is trying to do in the world, in redeeming a people for himself from every nation, tribe, and language, he works it out in distinct stages. And up until this point, God had worked out his plan through one family, family descended from the patriarch Abraham. But with the religious leaders' rejection of Jesus, they had sealed their fate. They were under the judgment of God, and he was going to remove the vineyard from them and give it to somebody else. Later, the Apostle Paul is going to tease out the implications of all this in Romans 9, 10, and 11. And what he says is that God's no longer dealing with people on the basis of their ancestry or their ethnicity, but all people, whether Jew or Gentile, could get in on the blessings of salvation based on their response to Jesus. That's it. And that's what Jesus is thinking about. Hey, I'm going to take the vineyard away from you and I'm going to give it to these other people. So over and over and over, he is casting this vision for God's plan for the whole world. He says there are going to be many people gathered at the table of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Many people from the ends of the earth. Jesus says in John 10 that he's the good shepherd. He said, I have sheep that are not of this fold, and I must go to them too. It's why he says at the very end of Matthew's gospel, go into all the world, making disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. 
Jesus has a bigger vision than these religious leaders could, could manage. He wants to save the world. And Paul helps us understand it, and he says over in Romans chapter 10, probably something you've memorized along the way. And if you haven't, it's probably something we ought to memorize. Romans 10, verse 9 through 13. He says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For whoever says, for the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. This morning, this is what I want you to see, that people who recognize the authority of Jesus receive his salvation. And Paul says, recognize the authority of Jesus first starts with a confession that Jesus is Lord. What have the religious leaders done? They have completely denied the authority of Jesus. But the crowds of people were shouting, Hosanna. They were falling down before him. They were praising God for the arrival of Jesus. Peter says it back in Mark chapter 8. Who do they say that I am? Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of God. After the resurrection, Thomas is going to see his hands and his feet, and he's going to say, my Lord and my God. Recognizing the authority of Jesus always begins with a public confession of your faith in Christ. And that public confession is always verbal, with the mouth. You say something like, I believe that Jesus is Lord. Maybe it's done in a baptistry, or maybe it's done to a friend or to a pastor, but you come to this moment in time where you recognize Jesus for who he is, and you, you say it. Hey, I think I'm coming to this place where I realize Jesus is the point of it all. Jesus is everything to me. Jesus is Lord. The Bible says you can only say that if the Spirit of God is within you. So recognizing the authority of Jesus means to confess the authority of Jesus as Lord. And typically that verbal profession, whether made privately or in a church, coincides with the public confession of baptism. Now, this is the statement we make to the whole world. It's based on this idea that Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 10. Everyone who confesses me before people, I will also confess him before my Father who's in heaven. Because of that, we know there are no undercover Christians. Every Christian, every person who recognizes the authority of Jesus tells the world about it. Starts maybe with a small circle of family and friends, maybe a pastor, maybe you did it by raising your hand, and that was the indication that you believe that Jesus is Lord. But it's followed as quickly as possible by the public demonstration of that submission in baptism. And then, number two, it's not just the confession, it's the daily decision to live under the authority of Jesus. That is the call to discipleship, to take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow Jesus. Mark taught, uh, J Paul taught all about that in Romans chapter 6. We said that we've been buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life, and therefore we don't offer our bodies to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but we offer ourselves to God. We want to live in a way that pleases God, that's consistent with the profession we make with our mouth, that Jesus really is Lord, and he's dictating the terms of my life. Where I take all of my desires, 
all of my dreams and all of my plans, and I give them over to him. Not making him first among many different priorities in my life, but making him the all-consuming desire of my life. Jesus, I want what you want for me. I want what you want for my family. I want what you want for my work and occupation. I want what you want for the minutes I spend every day. I want to live under your authority. You are God. I am not. And if you hear that and you get a little uneasy, that's kind of the point. Jesus could have said lots of different things, used a lot of different metaphors, but when he wanted to teach us about the cost of discipleship, he used the image of a cross. He wants you to die to yourself, to crucify your desires with him, to lay down everything you once thought was valuable, to count it all as lost and nothing compared to the insurpassable value of knowing Jesus as Lord. That's the goal of the Christian life, to live in complete submission to Jesus. And so if you get uneasy, you're, you're understanding it. That's the point. It's like the Chinese man that Dr. Donald Barnhouse, who's a longtime pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, he led him to Christ in Jakarta, Indonesia. And he was the son of a wealthy merchant and had lived an incredibly wild and hedonistic life. But Dr. Barnhouse, over the course of several revival meetings, was talking to him and trying to persuade him to surrender his life to Christ. And eventually he did. And the next day, he went to the local printer and had them print up a thousand greeting cards. On the inside, this is what he wrote. Having become a Christian, I want all my friends to know that I will no longer be seen in my old haunts or living my old way of life, to which he signed his name and put in the mail. That is the submission that Jesus deserves. When you recognize him as Lord, when you recognize the authority of Jesus in your life, there will be a clear distinction as much as a choose-your-own-adventure book. You come to the fork in the road. What path will the hero take? What path will the heroine take? Will he reject Jesus as Lord? Will he joyfully submit to him and follow him wherever he leads? Will she continue living a life apart from Christ, rejecting his word and authority in her heart? Or will she die to herself and live to Christ? That is the choice that stands before each of us today. Which choice will you make? Are you living under the authority of Jesus? If somebody took a good long look at your life, would it be obvious to them that Jesus is Lord of all? Or that he's not Lord at all? Don't make the same mistake the religious leaders did in trying to exert your truth or your belief system, your values over the authority that Jesus clearly holds as Messiah and King. Surrender to him today. In just a few minutes, Mike and our band are going to come and they're going to lead us in another song. 
And as they do, uh, we're going to have some people in the back, and I'll be down here at the front. If you know that you're not living under the authority of Jesus today, but you want to be, come talk to one of us. Today's the day to do what Alex and Alicia have done, to make a clean break in the life you've lived and the life Jesus is calling you to live from this day forward. Maybe you need to be baptized. We've got shorts and T-shirts. Alicia can attest. We want you to get baptized. We want you to make the right choice to see Jesus as the Lord of all and to submit to his authority. Maybe you've already been baptized, though, and seeing them baptized reminded you of how real your faith was back then, how real Jesus was, how desperately you wanted to live obediently to him, how much you wanted to know God. And as they were baptized, you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could get back to that. You can today. You can get back to where you were. I'd love to talk to you about that. People in the back will be there. You can talk to them. Maybe you need a church family. Maybe you know that if you're left to yourself, you're not going to show up at church on Sunday. You need to be on somebody's Sunday school roll so they miss you when you're not here. We'd love to be that church family. Maybe you know, though, that you just need prayer for something. Something in your heart and in your life is not right, and you don't even know how to put words to it, but you know that if somebody would just take you by the hand and verbalize a prayer to God on your behalf, that he would hear and he would answer. I'd love to do that. I'd love to pray for you. Grab anybody in the back and they'll pray for you too. I'm volunteering all of them. Saw Jerry, I saw your face. But however you need to obey God in this moment, do it. That's what we're here for. Jesus is passing by. Don't let him get away. Cry out to him, Son of David, have mercy on me. And see how he answers. Will you pray with me?